There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. First of all, apologies for the late episode. I didn't have a very great Christmas as I ended up catching pneumonia and was in hospital. So for obvious reasons, I wasn't able to publish the episode as planned, but you're having it right now. And this is the final episode of the season. I'm back on Thursday with a brand new episode from a 2024 author. But first, this week, the final episode of the season, I'm talking to Emma Claire Wilson about her commercial novel, This Child of Mine. Emma Claire is an author, freelance copywriter and mentor. After almost 20 years of living on the continent, she returned to the UK with her husband, two daughters and rescued dog Pip. In this episode, we discuss why she uses first-person perspective to help readers live through her character's light and dark, how she chose to transform her novel into a commercial style, and building a writing platform before she had a book deal. But before we hear that, here's Emma Clare with an excerpt from This Child of Mine. It was supposed to be the happiest day of my life. I was supposed to bounce out of this chair and follow the sonographer into a room for a follow-up scan to hear the sex of our first child. This was supposed to be the day all our dreams came true. I was supposed to have a grin on my face and a heart full of joy and love. But that's not what happened. My heart knew it was coming before anyone else did. Somehow my body knew it too. I could feel it. My heart wasn't racing. In fact, I think it had all but stopped. I couldn't feel anything. My body had slipped into self-protection mode and I was simply numb from head to toe. Ms Jackson, Mr Jackson, come right through. I tried to rise from the plastic bucket chair but my legs didn't want to respond. I stood and adjusted my skirt, the hem pricking at the skin on my thigh as I hazarded a glance towards the girl sat on one of the remaining seats just a little further down the corridor. Her faithful partner perched just as James had been like an eager puppy on the very edge of the chair. Her face was so full of hope. A twinkle in her eyes like Christmas had come early. Her dream was just beginning. I had the distinct impression all of mine were about to end. I couldn't look towards James. I didn't feel in control of my own body. I knew I was in the room, but I felt like I was watching the scene play out from overhead. Detached from the situation I never imagined I'd find myself in. Maybe it was self-preservation. I didn't want to see the remnants of hope in his eyes. I knew the panic in mine would kill every prayer he had made these past few weeks. I shuffled forward, not floating, but dragging my terrified body towards the door of doom. I stopped at least three paces short of the door where my feet hit glue that stuck them to the spot. My eyes were unable to move from the clock on the wall. A tiny piece of sellotape was stuck to its edge. Gold shards of plastic tinsel splayed out at messy angles, a nod to Christmas past. The aircon made the strips flutter in time with the ticking of the clock. It's August. Don't you know it's bad luck to leave remnants of Christmas decorations up after January, I said. Well, we can't have that bad luck here, can we? Dr Lee replied with a conciliatory smile. I'll make sure the receptionist takes it down. Too bloody late for me, though, right? 
Hi, Emma Claire. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, This Child of Mine. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Um, this podcast has been my sanity and comfort blanket throughout the publishing process. So it's a bit of a pinch me moment to be talking to you about my debut. So thank you for inviting me on. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. Um, it's always it's always very odd to me for me to hear people say that they've kind of used the podcast throughout their journey because I feel like I haven't even been doing it that long. But it's so nice to hear anyway. No, it's, it's definitely been a sanity saver, put it that way. Great. So, Emma Claire, can you start by telling us what your novel, This Child of Mine, is about? Um, so This Child of Mine is a work of emotional women's fiction. It follows Stephanie as she embarks on her last chance pregnancy with a child that she has so dearly wanted for a very long time. But on the day of her first scan, she gets the news from the doctor that completely rocks her world. She's diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she now has to choose between the treatment that will save her life. And but the only problem is if she chooses the treatment, then she will lose the baby that she's longed for. So it starts with this one over defining question of how do you choose between your own life and a life that you have wanted so badly to bring into the world? Yeah. And obviously you you throw your character straight into that emotional dilemma from from right from the start. And I've seen. Yeah you talk about this novel and say it's a it's a personal book but it's not an autobiographical book um I was wondering if you could share kind of where your inspiration came from I know that perhaps that's slightly spoilery but if you can give us a kind of taste of where this book began <laughs> yeah it is slightly spoilery but I think I've gotten used to trying to answer this question now in a in a, in a roundabout way so um yeah it's a it, this story is a blend of personal experience and elements of what if um, I was told when I was really young that I would likely never have children. Um, and I have a very strong history of female cancers in my family. So living with cancer has been something that I've had to, to deal with for my entire life. Um, I was told that if I did conceive, it would be very tough. Um, I lost several children to miscarriage along the way. And so the pain and desperation that Stephanie feels in, in the book about trying to have that child that she's so longed for, that's a part of me that I, I really understand. And, under, and so that's part of the personal experience. But with Stephanie's story, I wanted to explore something that might have happened had I chosen a different path myself in, when faced with a similar situation. Um, although there's moments in the books that are not autobiographical, the majority of them are drawn from either my own personal experiences or from those that were close to me. Um, it wasn't until I started to speak out, I guess, about my own struggles that I realised that there were so many other women out there that were either going through similar situations or had been. And it shocks me that we still keep these experiences to ourselves. They're still quite taboo. And Stephanie's experience being diagnosed with cancer during pregnancy, it's actually not unusual. Um, and I think one of the stories that really stuck with me was when the book was announced and we put the, the announcement in the bookseller. The day after the bookseller announcement went out, Ed Sheeran and his wife came out and mentioned that that she had gone through uh, cancer during pregnancy. And it was for everybody else in the press, it was quite a shock. You know, how does this happen? This has not really happened before. And so it felt like it had been the right moment to have these kind of discussions and being able to open up a conversation where people that are going through this don't feel quite so alone. In truth, the, the driving main inspiration for the book, that spark moment that happened for me, um, those who read the book, the words that happen at the very end of the novel are the words that sparked the entire novel completely for me. Um, the words that are spoken at the end of the novel were actually spoken to me by my youngest daughter. And without giving the ending away, she posed a question many years ago that led me down a path of research and led me asking the question, If what if a child is meant for you, no matter how it finds its way to you? So no matter the trauma that you go through trying to have a child, if that child that you end up with at the end was always meant for you, how does that happen? And what are the different influences that can happen in your life to make that happen? So without giving away the ending too much, 
um, the final page of the book is what started the idea in the first place. And that very much is a very personal experience that happened. That was a, a scene that happened between me and my daughter. Mm. So You're going to encourage people now to buy the book and flick straight to the back, but hopefully that's not going to happen. Because No, don't read the end first. Don't read the end first. It's worth it, I promise you. It's a <laughs> lot of tears and a lot of tissues needed, but it's worth it to wait to the end to get to that page. So, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the, the tears and the tissues because um, you're obviously dealing with really sensitive topics, really emotional topics. I wondered, first of all, how you handled that in terms of the book. Like, how do you make sure you're treading very carefully? But also, how do you look after yourself as a writer? Because we want to know how intense the process is. But when you're dealing with something so difficult and so emotional, how do you stop yourself from becoming an emotional wreck every time you write? <laughs> Well, I'm an emotional wreck 99% of the time anyway. So that's kind of something that's fairly normal to me. Um, I have always said I read to escape the world, but I write to make sense of it. I write because I don't know what is in my head until it's on the page. Um, and when I had gone through so many experiences similar to Stephanie, for me, writing this felt an awful lot like therapy. So, yes, it was really tough at times putting myself back in a situation where I'm I'm writing about um, situations that I've been in myself and having to live in that moment with my character. When I'm writing, I definitely feel as if I'm the character. And so reliving that on a personal level as well as the character level, it can be really tough. But it's also incredibly cathartic. And for me, getting it on the page allows me to see clearly what it is that my thought process is and be able to move past it. So writing sensitive topics, I'm always super careful that although, yes, these were my personal experiences and I, that I was drawing from, I'm also not the only person that's gone through experiences like this. So I always made sure to talk to other people that had gone through this and, and align what I had gone through and how I felt, but also take into consideration how they felt and the differences in how different people felt and make sure that you're adding sprinkles of other people. Mm -hmm. So although it's incredibly personal, I'm able to step back enough and put other people's experiences into that and make sure that I am representing just more than one person's point of view. And I think because I'm so careful to make sure that other people feel heard, it allows me that distance to put myself into it first and then during the edit, step back and be able to edit in other people's emotions and feelings and experiences too, to give myself that little bit of distance. So the first draft is, here's 24 hours a day, but the edit is stripping it back and understanding that actually trying to find those light and dark moments that everybody feels and putting other people's experiences into it gives it that roundness. And so I, that it's not as emotional during the edit as it is during the first draft. So I'm a wreck first draft generally when it comes to writing anything but when it comes to the edit it I feel like it it gives me that balance and that's where I balance out my own mental health and and come out of that dark hole of of tissues and snot and and come into a, a bit more of a an understanding part of the process so yeah I did notice that um your characters are very realistic in the way that they handle the, these situations because it doesn't stop there from being left moments. It doesn't stop there from being some very bleak, dark humour, which I think we all use to get through very difficult times. So that helps with the balance of that dark and light. And I think obviously for, and I'm sure your readers will agree that, that you've got to have that when you're writing something so deeply emotional. I wanted to touch upon Stephanie, your um, main character, because the novel is written from her point of view. And I wondered whether that was always the case because being quite close to the story, obviously from a first person, there is no escape from her inner thoughts. Did you ever nope. consider switching the perspective, turning it to probably a third person? How did you come to get to this um, first person point of view? Um, this Stephanie in my head was always first person. Um, so when even when I wrote the first iteration of this book, it was always first person. And I think it was important to me because I wanted the readers to live the moments with Stephanie in her head as she was reading them. I think the questions posed within the book are 
quite divisive. And so when you pick up the book in the first place, there are a lot of people that will have an opinion, very strong opinion one way or the other. And I think to be able to take a reader on a journey where they understand the character and how the characters come to their decision, you have to have them live in her world. I think it also allows then the reader to feel those light and dark moments so that when you're living in Stephanie's head and there are those light moments, as a reader, you're being given the chance to breathe at the same time that she is. So it helps with the pace of the novel to have you constantly in Stephanie's mind. But I think for me, it was really important to have people live her reality and understand that actually as a human, when you're posed with that question, every single person will have an instant gut reaction as to how they expect to react to that kind of situation. Going through the journey of then how you get to how real life makes you either choose or not choose or not be allowed to choose, or you have to live that with the character. And I don't think that you can do that in any other way than being right inside her head. So it was always first person, uh, wasn't written, this book in its iteration now is different to the when, it, when I wrote the very first draft, but it was always from Stephanie's point of view that it was, that it was written for sure. Mm. I want to touch on this first iteration because before we started recording, I, I had no idea, but you told me that this book looked very, very different to begin with. And it was a very conscious choice to change the book and to make it a again this is a contentious word because I'm going to say to make it a more commercial book now some people I'm sure will see that as a bit of a dirty word or a uh, (laughs) controversial thing to talk about but I don't see any problem with actually wanting to sell books so uh, or wanting wanting people to enjoy and read and and as many readers as possible to enjoy your novel so Emma Claire can you tell us a little bit about how this book changed how are you decided to switch it because initially it was a lot more of a a literary kind of lovely bone style novel so how did you and why did you decide to change it so when I first wrote the novel when it was picked up by my agent um it was it was it was pitched up against the lovely bones it was written um from two points of view it was written from Stephanie's point of view first person but it was also written from the baby's point of view uh, as before the child is born, but watching her mother making this decision and watching her mother having to go through all of what she goes through in the book, but waiting to be born into this world, having having um, watched everything that she, that's going on from above. Um, now, obviously, it, that makes it a completely different book because you know from the beginning what the situation is and, and how it works out. And it was written because it was slightly more literary. It was not literary. That, I, see, this is one of the words you've got to be really careful in this industry, because when you say literary and commercial, people think that they are completely different things. It was written for an audience that wasn't quite as commercial. And to make it to get this book into the hands of mass readership, I wanted everyone to be able to read this book. I wanted it to be much more accessible. Mm. And when the book was first sold or when we went out on submission during uh, COVID with this book, there was a a lot of interest from lots of different publishers with the first iteration, with it, with those two points of view. When we eventually sold it to Avon, it was um, my editor at the time, Thorne Ryan and Alicia London um, was was the editor on the book with us so that I had two editors which was fabulous they both made the point that actually if I want this to get into mass public hands it needs to be slightly more commercial and we needed to have the hook or the or the reveal at the end rather than having the entire thing written the whole way through in in two points of view and for me it was more important to have this book reach the right people at the right time and to have that one person that feels really alone and is going through this situation or something similar and feel heard and understood it was much more important to reach that person than for this book to just sit on a shelf with a slightly prettier cover or a different type of marketing or a different type of sales process it needed to be a this is a tearjerker this is a Jodie Pico this is an Emma Robinson this is a if you like to cry and if you like your heart ripped out and put back together again this is the book to read because although there are many more layers to the book within it I wanted people to pick up the book 
Mm. And so to get people to pick up the book and go through this process and have these questions, some of them are quite tough questions. Some of the situations she goes through are really quite tough and you don't expect that in a more commercialized novel. I wanted mass readership. And so when they said, well, let's flip it, let's let's go mass market. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely don't have an issue with that whatsoever. Um, and it's worked. There are people that have picked up this book and read it that would never have read a book like this before, would never have considered some of the questions that are posed within the book before. And for me, that was the purpose. This whole commercial literary, I'm not somebody that subscribes to the snobbery of the publishing world. Like you read what you read. It doesn't matter if it's literary. It doesn't matter if it's commercial. It doesn't matter if it's chick lit. It doesn't matter if it's rom-com. If it's a good book, it's a good book. If it makes you cry and it affects you and it lives in your heart for the next 10 years, does it matter whether or not it won the Booker Prize or whether it won the Nero Awards? It shouldn't matter. What you love reading and what affects you shouldn't matter. So when they said, let's take it more commercial, I was not somebody who was like, oh, no. I need to I need to be careful no 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 get it into people's hands I want somebody who needs to feel like they have been alone and they don't feel understood or they felt like they've gone through this whole situation and nobody understands how they feel I want that person to pick up the book and read it and feel seen that means sales that means commercial that means getting it on the bookshelves that means getting it on people's kindles however we can mm. that's what's most important to me so I actually, when you were talking and you did actually say the word, and I, I think this is a better word, but I think it's actually accessible fiction rather yes. than commercial. It's fiction okay. that you could give it to anyone and they could read or they could not feel intimidated by it because I think we often associate reading or, or fiction with school or with difficult, you know, being forced to read Dickens or Shakespeare and things. Yes. Um and I think that some there's an audience out there that have forgotten that reading is great fun and reading is enjoyable or reading sparks emotion and and if you like you say if you can get the books to the right people then that's that's the best thing. I'm sure there'd be some writers that would be horrified or cringing or <laughs> ter like terrified of the thought of losing all their pretty words or sentences to change yeah. to a different you know a different type of book. Um, but it also I think is very much dependent on what you as a writer want if you want your book if you want your work to be read if you want your work to be um, I don't know your sentences to be treasured or I don't know how people feel about this but um, I can imagine there would be people who sit either side of the fence in terms of how yes. they want their book to be because I think everyone has feelings about how they would like their book to be marketed or seen or um, you know where where they'd like it to sit on a shelf or who they'd like the comp titles to be so I, don't I think I think it's a hard and really controversial issue. And I think it uh, there'll probably be a lot of people listening to this go, what on earth is she talking about? But I think for me, I still have sentences and prose within this book that mean so much to me. And they are, and, and I've had lots of comments. There's quite a lot of purple prose in this. There is beautiful writing. And I don't think that that just because something is commercial means that it doesn't have beautiful prose. I think that how you tackle the structure of the book and how you tackle the characters, it makes it slightly more commercial. But I think that you can, commercial and accessible fiction is just as beautifully and can be just as beautifully written as any kind of classic book. Classic books are classic books because they have affected people, not necessarily because of the prose, but because they affect people. And I think that for me, I love writing but I am seeing my publishing journey as long term mm. this is one book in what I hope will be a long career of writing does that mean that at some point I might write something that's slightly more on the literary side of the fence than accessible maybe but I don't see writing as writing in a genre I write the words that I want people to read it's up to the sales team where that where they put it it's up to the publishers how they sell it. But I would still write this type of fiction. How you sell it is up to you as a salesperson. How I write it is how I want people to read it. There are pros within this that I am proud of. But there's also a lot that I stripped out so that people can, like we say, can feel that it is much more accessible and easier to read because I want it to be mass market. I want people to be able to pick it up easy. So 
It's a difficult, I've always found it quite a contentious subject to talk about because I know everybody has their opinions. I'm the least literary snob. I will read and write anything. I think that if you, if something affects you and you love reading something, it shouldn't matter where, what awards it's won or what shelf you picked it up from. If it, if it affects you, it affects you. So that I, tr I try to write as I read. Mm. I'm not going to write to an audience I'll write to what I think I want to say and then it's up to the publishers how then they sell it mm. I personally so. think you know it's nice to have a bit, uh, bit of both an appetite for everything I'm the same with my tv I like my reality trash but I also like my you know success yep so, <laughs> I'm right there with you right there with both. you a bit of both <laughs> is good for the soul I think um, absolutely I want before we get on to kind of how you got your book deal and you know how you got came to get your agent and stuff I want to talk a little bit about your writing process because um I'd just like to know kind of what a writing day is like for you do you set yourself targets um I know you're a big fan of the old post-it note so how do you go about um your kind of what's your writing routine like I think when I first started writing a novel, I had absolutely no idea what a writing process was. I just kind of sat in a chair, wrote and had no idea what I was doing. And along the way, I've I've met some fantastic authors who have helped me hone a process. Um, Julie Cohen with her post-it note course um, revolutionized how I how I write as a writer. Um, Alison May, um, who was my writing mentor, helped me understand structure and process. And so now when I write, I am definitely a plotter, less of a pantser and more of a plotter these days. Um, Post-it notes are all over my entire house, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they are they are my guiding light. But a good day for me, I spend an awful lot of time kind of staring at a wall. A lot of people will say to me, you know, you write very fast, you write really quick. I On a good day, I can sit down and churn out between eight and 10,000 words. I will sit at my desk at nine o'clock in the morning and you will not see me until until every single word has bled out of my fingertips. Um, but I have been a journalist for 20 years. So writing a lot is not difficult for me. It feels quite it, it feels like home. I write all day, every day anyway. So the number of words that come out in a day, I can sit down and churn out between eight and ten thousand. However, for everybody out there who's going, oh, my God, I can't write more than 250 words a day. And how is she doing this? That's I stare I stare at the wall for about six months and I live with these characters in my head and mm -hmm. all of the scenes. I can't write anything until I can see the entire book in my head as a movie. And I write every single thing that I see, hear, smell, taste, touch. I'm an overwriter. So when I sit down at my desk everything that I see in my head comes out. So I'll see the entire movie. I know my characters. I know where they are. I know how they sound, what they eat for breakfast. And then when I sit down at my desk, 10,000 words in a day will just pour out and I will be knackered by the end of it. But I almost don't have a choice. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like I've already done the six months of living with them and it physically just, it, it hurts to keep it inside and it just pours onto the page. The work, hard work comes in the edit because stripping that back and understanding what it is that my readers need to, to see and hear. What I needed to put on the page so that I understood my characters is one thing, but what needs to stay on the page for the reader is different. So just because you'll see on Twitter, I'll be like, oh, 10,000 words done today. That was that was six months worth of staring at a wall. Don't think that that just comes out easy. Um, for instance, with my book two that I wrote, um, I wrote 40,000 words of book two and then deleted the entire lot and then wrote 42,000 words of the entire book and deleted the entire lot and then wrote my actual full first draft, 110,000 words in four weeks. And it literally killed me. By the end of it, I was a zombie. But that book had lived in my head for so long that it needed to come out in one. It can't come out in drips and drabs. It doesn't work for me like that. It has to come out as a force by itself. So a good day will be 10,000. A bad day will be I'll be sat staring at a wall and my husband wonders what on earth I do for a living. Um, you know, it's it, 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 everybody has their different processes. But for me, that's the only way that it works. Mm. It sounds like you do a lot of your 
kind of foundation building first before you actually put yeah or, or fingers to keyboard um your journey to publication is a really interesting one and it's something um that one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast and talk to you about how you became published because um in your own words you said you spent many years building a platform learning about the industry and trying to kind of avoid mistakes that other people had made and try to learn from other debuts so tell us about that tell us about how it all happened for you when did you kind of get your agent how did you get your agent and and what was this what was this journey like for you okay so I have been a writer for all my life I left university after my first year at uni because I felt totally disillusioned with what I was being taught by a lecturer and felt like I needed to just get into the world of writing so I started as a journalist at the age of 19 went straight into a job and was like, I'm not leaving until somebody gives me as a job as a journalist I'll make teas and coffees I don't care I'll work my way up and I think that going into journalism in that way um, really gave me a foundation to figure out how I was going to go into publishing understanding that actually sometimes it's not learning through books sometimes people can't learn an industry by learning process from somebody that's teaching them some people just need to put boots on the ground and understand it from the inside out and so with journalism that's exactly what I did I worked hard from the from the very bottom run of the ladder all the way up and I I and I did it and I did it with passion and determination and trying to figure out how to do it by making mistakes along the way and so I always knew I wanted to be a writer I never understood that I could be a novelist I always thought I I mean I'm terrible at spelling and grammar but I'm a great journalist but I'm terrible at spelling and grammar so I never thought I could be a novelist because I just thought well I'm not I'll never be a good enough writer to be a novelist so I stuck within my lane for a very long time and it wasn't until I got very, very drunk one night in Spain with my husband and blurted out that I wanted to write a book. And he didn't laugh at me. He instead was like, you should you should do it. You should absolutely try. But I think having had that foundation of I don't understand what I'm doing, I really need to understand what I'm doing before I do it. I wanted to try and learn a little bit about the industry. So I I set up um, the Glass House, uh, the Glass House online magazine. And I set that up with two other writers who all of us had wanted to be novelists. All of us wanted to be writers. But we also understand we also had backgrounds. One one of them, uh, Isabella May, she had um, background in children's publishing. And Natalie Simmons had had background um, in marketing. So we all understood that to be able to be in this industry, you have to understand it from different points of view. So we tried to set up a platform where we wanted to show publishers, if we did get into publishing, that we could write more than one type of content, that we could tackle different types of of issues and scenarios and situations. And so we built the glass house and we tackled these really tough situations and topics and things in articles that we wanted to tackle in novels. And we learned how to write by doing that. Both of those writers have gone on to be incredibly successful published authors themselves. Um, but this, the glass house was my baby. And I, I spent a long time helping other people understand how to write. I taught people how to write articles. I brought people on who had never done journalism before and taught them how to be, how, how to be writers and helped them with their words and hid for a long time behind mm-hmm. the editor role. I'm too busy. I'm an editor of the glass house. You know, I've got too many other people and I helped a lot of other people get their books published. I helped a lot of them put their their books together, put their synopsis together. I help them write. I help them understand the industry and I help them get their agents and then get on to publishing. And I hid behind their work for a long time, scared, not thinking that I was good enough. But also I think now looking back, I really needed and wanted to understand exactly how it worked. And I watched as other people around me treaded those boards and went into the into the slush piles and and the rounds of submission and watched the rejections and built this wall of steel around me thinking okay if I'm going to do this I now understand what it looks like I think a lot of writers have no idea what they're going into when they first go on submission they've got no idea how the publishing industry works just like I had no idea about the journalism industry but learning it from the inside out made it less scary 
So for me, going through the process and watching other people do it meant that when I was ready to finally put my book baby out into the world, I was ready for the rejection. I was ready for the months of sitting around and waiting because I'd watched other people go through this process. So it felt much more of a, a, a calm journey. Now, that's not to say it was calm, because <laughs> when I did go on submission, just because you build this wall of steel doesn't mean that it's actually easy. Um, I, I, I joined the RNA, uh, the Romantic Novelists Association, and learned an awful lot through them, met my mentor through them. Um, and when I went to one of their conferences, I started meeting agents and publishers for the first time. When I first gave them my book, I really wasn't expecting anybody to say anything other than, yes, this is good, carry on on this track, maybe in a couple of years you'll be good enough. What I didn't expect was the very first conference, um, all for agents and, and publishers to turn around and say, we want your book. Wow. I really wasn't expecting that. I was expecting a, mm, a little bit more work needed on this, a little bit more work needed on that, maybe try editing your synopsis. But all four had said that they were interested. And uh, one publisher in particular had said, I really want this, but you need an agent because I can't take you un unsolicited. So you need to go and find an agent and then get this book on my desk. And so I contacted Kate Nash um, because she was one of the agents that I had had my eye on for a while um, for various different reasons and mentioned to her, I was like, I, I know that um, I've sent you my my book. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but I've now had a publisher that says that they're interested. My book had slipped through the net somehow, hadn't had managed to fall off the slush pile. She'd picked it up and read it and within a weekend had said, oh, I cried the whole way through. Now, Kate Nash is not somebody that would generally normally cry at books unless she's really affected. So the fact that she cried at the book, I was like, okay, I, I might have actually stumbled on something that works here um and we went out on submission with the book just as covid hit mm. there there was a lot of reticence within the publishing industry about whether or not they wanted to publish a book like this in the middle of a pandemic so it kind of sat on freezer hold for two years while the pandemic did its thing until people were ready again for emotional fiction so it was a stop start stop start process it was a it was at the conference, everybody wanted it. And then it was, okay, no, nobody can publish it. And then let's put it on hold for a couple of years. And then and then everybody wanted it again, but they wanted it commercialized rather than slightly more literary. So it, although I knew what was coming and I had spent years watching other people make these mistakes and the different paths that it could take, it didn't make my journey any easier. It just meant that I had much more patience and much more understanding for this roller coaster that was going to come. So I feel like my mental health uh, suffered less because I was um, I was less worried about it all happening quickly. I was more prepared for stop starts because I had watched it happen to so many other people. So I think in that respect, the the journey and the process I'd gone through with journalism really helped me set myself up for. The, the slow stop start process that can be publishing in this in this crazy time that we're living in it's not easy to get a book published at the best of times but trying to get a book published in the middle of a pandemic was was particularly difficult so do you think, do you think your kind of knowledge of of how things were going um also helped make your decision about making your book more commercial do you think it had an influence yes absolutely absolutely i think because i i, I think everybody wants has an idea like we've we've said before everybody has an idea as to where they would like their book to be published and you know what their covers will look like and the type of readership that they have but I think sitting in that world for so long and seeing how many people other people's processes had to change and how I know some people use the word sacrifice you know well I had to sacrifice this to be able to get this readership I don't see it as a sacrifice a publishing is a long process but it's also a long career and one book does not an author make. It's you, it's all of the books throughout my, my hopefully, my long career, if I'm lucky enough. Um, if readers like my work, it's not the only book I'll have. So it's understanding that process and having that time to slow down and not live to everybody else's expectations and everybody else's worries and fears around me. Having that time and that chance to breathe throughout it really did help 
So when Avon turned around and said, we want to make it commercial, I was in a much healthier headspace to say, actually, yes, that that is something that I would be prepared to do in order to make sure that this is a long career rather than just a one hit wonder kind of book. So, yes, definitely. You talked about sort of hiding behind others a little bit and um, <laughs> your own um, publishing journey but for the sake of other people. But do you think you're kind of building that platform and having that, um, that I guess, that insider space or that literary space? Did you think that helped you um, either get a book deal or help you just as a as a writer yourself? Do you think it's valuable for maybe other people to explore having some sort of platform before they start looking for an agent? Or do you think that you personally needed that, but it's not necessary for a journey? I don't think that it's necessary for a journey. I think there's an awful lot of writers out there who don't like social media or have never worked in journalism and they don't write blogs or they don't write articles and they don't write for press. I don't think that it's make it or break it. I think every single person's journey is different. Um, I think it helps or at least it helps me. I understand that within the industry that we're in now, it doesn't matter whether or not you're with a top five publisher or with uh, an indie press or self-published. You have to understand a certain amount of marketing and be able to push yourself or at least be able to contact people to try and do your own interviews or reach out to magazines and newspapers to get your book slightly more um, slightly more of an audience. Because publishing there are thousands hundreds of thousands of books published you are up against so much competition so understanding that world has helped and can help but I don't think it's vital for everybody's journey everybody's looking for a different kind of publishing experience some people just want to write the book give it to a publisher and have them deal with it and that's absolutely fine for me I love this world. I want to be involved in every area of it. I love the marketing side of it. I love the PR side of it. I like talking. I like explaining the book. I love interviews. I would love nothing more to be on panels and to do to do all of the, the literary festivals. I like talking about the ideas around publishing. So for me, this is part of my journey and it works for me. Um, but also, I've spent most of my career as a writer helping other writers. It's something I'm incredibly passionate about. I've been a mentor as a writer for much longer than I've been a published author. I've helped many, many other authors get their books published before I was published myself. I love helping writers. So having a platform where I can invite other authors on and say, tell me about your experiences and I'll help you write articles so that you can get more press. I'll help you write articles so that you can get more exposure. I love, I get a buzz out of helping other people who never thought that they could do something like this actually do it. So I get to marry both worlds and both passions. At the same time, I get to write books and have people read my words but I also get to work with some of the most incredible writers who deserve their stories to be heard that maybe would never have had the chance because I've got the experience to help them. And so I get the best of both worlds. So in that respect, I find myself incredibly fortunate. I live and work. I do that one thing that people always say, find something you love in life and you never work a day in your life. I get to spend my days writing books and helping others write theirs. I couldn't think of anything better, but it doesn't mean every author that is a debut author needs to follow the same path I think everybody's journey is totally different. Mm. Speaking of on the debuts and you've already given us uh, a lot of advice already so I'm conscious that I don't want you to um, feel like you have to repeat yourself but is there anything that you I know you had quite a lot of knowledge already but is there anything you wish you had known before signing your um, contract and um, obviously there are so many ups and downs of being a debut but what would your advice be to next year's cohort? We're just about to reach the 2024 debuts. Uh, and I was wondering if you had any advice for them. How how do you cope? How do you deal with all the ups and downs? Um, what would I what would I say before signing a deal? Um, understand that just when you, when you have signed a deal and you think that you're going to be published just because you've signed a deal doesn't mean that everything is then going to speed up everything about the process before and after signing any contract with an agent or with a publisher is going to be stop, start, stop, start. So just because you've signed a deal with a publisher does not mean that then everything is going to run at a million miles a minute. It's not. 
it's going to be all full on at some points and then it is going to be glacially slow in others. Um, that I think is really important to remember. Um, when it comes to signing, I think that although not everybody feels they need or want an agent, I think for me, having a good agent that will back you up and stand by your side and fight your corner when you need to, for me, has been vital. I have been so incredibly fortunate with with my with my agent. She is a bit of a bulldog. She knows exactly how to how to stand up for her authors, and she is fierce for it. And and I love her for that. And she is exactly the person that I needed to be able to help me through this process. If there are any issues that I have, I have somebody in my corner. And on the same track as that, when you say, what would I say to debut novelists? Um, she is in my corner. But for me, finding your tribe, finding your writer friends who will help you through your debut year, that is the biggest piece of advice I could give you. Do not do your debut year alone. It is an absolute roller coaster of emotions. Your debut day, the day that your book releases, your publication day, is the most intense day you'll go through. And you'll have no idea the kind of emotions that you'll go through you won't expect. But every single other person that is going through it at the same time, they know how you feel. So lean on your debut authors. We have a great uh, Twitter group, a debut Twitter group. Um, and the people that have been on that debut group with me this year have have saved me on days when nobody else understood on days when I was crying when something good happened and my husband thought I was absolutely losing my mind <laughs> it's only other debut novelists that are going through it at that moment that understand because even other authors who have had five or six books out they're slightly more jaded by the time they get to book five or six mm. so I have lots of author friends amazing author 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 friends but the debut group that we built that tribe, they helped me through the darkest and happiest and most intense moments of the last year. So lean on them. Find people that you can lean on through that year because you they'll they'll save you for sure. Brilliant. And finally, can you give us a little teaser of what's next for you? What are you, what are you writing next or what's next on the agenda? I am currently working on my edits for book two. Um, which will be coming out. It was slated for uh, April uh, 24, but it might now be pushed to June. Uh, so June 2024. It is another emotional fiction novel. Uh, surprise, surprise. It's not. Um, it's it's definitely going to be one that you'll need the, the tissues for again. Again. Um, I'll read the little blurb that I've got because it's the only thing that I'm allowed to say right now because yeah. I'm not allowed to give anything else away. So um <laughs> One mistake could change two families' lives forever. Nicole and Victoria come from two different worlds, but when those worlds collide in the most unusual way, a strong bond of an unlikely friendship is made. Will that bond remain when a terrible mistake puts a child's life in danger and the future of two families on the brink of ruin? It's set between Scotland and Spain, um, Scotland where I was born and Spain where I've lived for the last 20 years, so it feels quite personal to me and scratches at themes surrounding Instagram versus real life, true friendship, how families um, can evolve in a non-traditional manner and how uh, tragedy can bring people together from completely different worlds to help uh, make bonds that will get you through some of the toughest times in your life. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a bit of a roller coaster again, um, but I, it's it's shaping up to be a, I, one of one of my favourite books so far. So I'm really enjoying writing it. So quite looking forward to seeing what what the readers think of that one. Yeah, brilliant. Well, it sounds very topical with those kinds of um, issues at the heart of it. But thank you, Emma Claire, uh, for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That was Emma Claire Wilson talking about her commercial novel, This Child of Mine which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts 
Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.